How about that? Okay. Okay. Lord, it's just you and me tonight. We're just in a... I know you're not in need of a sermon, but um... one announcement. Um, the Easter night of worship is happening this Friday. Of course, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then the following Friday we'll uh, celebrate Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And so this is a time of, of worship and preparation for all of that. So much to be thankful for. And that'll be this Friday, 7 p.m., and of course the whole family uh, is welcome. So let's turn to the book of Zechariah, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we come now to very nearly the end of the Old Testament. So if you hit uh, Matthew and go left, you should uh, hit Malachi and then the book of Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, so there's our introduction to the letter. Um, the book of Zechariah is known as a post-exilic book. Don't be intimidated by the language. I know you won't be. But uh, the prophets are divided into three groups based upon uh, the time that they prophesied for the Lord. There's one group known as the pre-exilic, that is pre-Babylonian exile. Uh, Jeremiah would be an example of a prophet who prophesied of the Babylonian uh, captivity and exile prior to it happening. So there is a pre-exilic, uh, there is an exilic, which would be like Daniel who prophesied during the time of the Babylonian uh, captivity, and then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are known as post-exilic. They uh, prophesied to the nation of Israel after the return of the Jewish people uh, to the land uh, of, of Israel. Uh, Zechariah lets us know that he is both uh, a prophet, but not only a prophet, but he is a descendant uh, also uh, of the priests. And uh, his grandfather, we're told, is Edo. Uh, we know from Nehemiah that uh, this, he was a priest who returned from the exile with Zerubbabel. Apparently, Zechariah succeeded his uh, grandfather as head of, of the priestly family. Nehemiah brings that out also in, in chapter 12 uh, and uh, makes mention of his arrival in, uh, in Jerusalem. Ezra also makes mention of, of the ministry of, of, uh, uh, of Zechariah. The date that's given to us uh, here is an important one. He began his prophetic ministry on October of 520 B.C., uh, two months after Haggai. You might remember the alarm clock to wake up the children of Israel who had been in the land for a while, had been sent back to rebuild the temple, fell asleep to that responsibility, needed to be woken up to uh, the fact that in their little time in, in human history, they were to rebuild the temple. And so Haggai wakes them up to that. And so two months after Haggai commenced his um, ministry, Zechariah begins his prophetic ministry. Haggai's prophetic ministry lasted only a period of about four months, and Zechariah's ministry would continue for uh, uh, many, uh, many years. Um, like Haggai, Zechariah was probably 
uh, one among the 42,000 Jews who returned to the land uh, with Zerubbabel and also with Joshua in order to, uh, from Babylon in order to rebuild uh, the temple. The theme of the book is really revealed in Zechariah's name, and his name means the Lord remembers, and, it, and that theme dominates the uh, entire book. And the idea is that despite the 70-year captivity of the children of Israel being put in the corner, in the doghouse for their sin, in order for them to be taken to Babylon. You like idolatry? You think that's a great way to go? I'll put you in the head, uh, idolatry headquarters in the ancient world and see how much you like it then uh, as opposed to my commandments and walking with me. And so uh, he cured them of their idolatry even to this, uh, to this day. And yet in spite of the fact that God put them in that captivity and they would have apart from the revelation of the prophets, would have thought, God is through with us. He's going to raise up the Peruvians or the Scots now to uh, continue his work. Not really, but that, uh, you know, we're, we're done. We have just blown it. We haven't just blown it in our generation in the world. We have blown the, the future of the Jewish people in human history and God's plans for that. And yet, with their repentance of their sin in Babylon, uh, with their uh, enduring of the chastening that they endured, uh, God now uh, remembers them. He remembers His plans that He has for them, and now He's going to continue, uh, continue those uh, plans. Remember now, and I mention it every so often, but God hasn't even gotten started with the Jewish people. Uh, in terms of his plans before they put the entire thing in jeopardy with their idolatry and their wickedness. Uh, the two great gifts of the Jews to the entire world is, number one, the Old Testament Scriptures. And, uh, and they weren't even completed uh, by that time. And then also the fulfillment of the Scriptures, and that is the coming of Messiah. They threw their future away before God could even uh, bring out the main attraction on things in terms of, of the Messiah. And, uh, and so the Lord comes in and makes, lets them know here, uh, following their mess up, that he, He's not done with them. He's going to continue His plans uh, through them. And their part in, in that uh, in the preparation for uh, bringing this wonderful gift uh, of the Scriptures, of the Messiah into human history, their part was to just simply rebuild uh, the temple. They were to be faithful to what God had called them to do uh, and in God's plan for their generation, uh, and uh, God would continue to build upon that until the coming of the Messiah. As a result of uh, of this, the book of Zechariah is very, very, very uh, messianic. It is filled with prophecies concerning Jesus, concerning, at that time, the coming uh, of the Messiah. It foretells his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 9, uh, his being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in chapter 11, that he would, uh, his death would occur as a stricken uh, shepherd in chapter 13, his coming again uh, to the Mount of Olives, chapter 14, his millennial reign as a high priest and as a, a king, chapter 14, and then many, many other prophecies that will be yet fulfilled by Jesus 
in, in His uh, second coming. I think that, uh, astonishingly to give us a sense of the importance of the book, the book of Zechariah is uh, quoted 42 times in the New Testament. Uh, and that is a, a, a quite a amount, large amount of reference for uh, uh, one of the minor uh, prophets. And so uh, the, the book is intended to give this long view of what God was planning to do with them, that He wasn't just calling them into the land. When you read the entirety of the book, He isn't just calling them into the land to build the temple, though that was their specific responsibility but that the building of that temple would culminate in the first and second comings of the Messiah into uh, human history. That what they were doing, what God was doing through them in the building of that temple was a part of a very, very large uh, plan uh, that, that they wouldn't be able to uh, recognize fully in, in their lifetime. I think uh, the old illustration of the bricklayer is, is fitting related to this. And uh, a passerby saw two masons lying, laying bricks, and he asked the one what he was doing. He received this uh, short reply, can't you see I'm laying bricks? And the other, when he was asked what he was doing, he looked up with pride in his voice and he exclaimed, sir, I am building a cathedral for God. And, and it is that realization that no matter what God has called us to do, no matter how significant we think it is, how insignificant that we think it is, it is a piece in the grandest uh, work uh, in human history. And, uh, and uh, we're playing an important part in, in what is yet uh, to unfold. And so he begins now in addressing a little bit of their history, verse 2, the Lord has been uh, very angry with your fathers, uh, Zechariah says, and therefore Zechariah is instructed to say to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord of, the hosts, uh, of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, uh, says the Lord of hosts. And so the Lord was very, very angry with the actions, the sin, the idolatry of their fathers of this generation. And uh, that was the result, uh, it resulted in the 70 years uh, of, of captivity. And so he calls on them uh, here uh, that they're to return to, to him. And if they return to him, he will return to them as well. This is a tremendous uh, insight and principle into uh, a, a, a person's, the potential of any individual person's relationship with God. Uh, James puts it this way in the New Testament, if we draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh to us. In other words, every single Christian in the world, including in this room, has exactly the relationship with God that they want that we want. It has, we have exactly uh, the kind of depth that we want, the kind of intimacy in a relationship with God that we want. God will go anywhere with us related to that. As deep and intimate and personal a relationship that we want to have with Him, He will meet us there. The decision is in, in our court in terms of what we, we want. When I was in school, they, they tried so many different things. When I was in elementary school and then in junior high, 
They're trying all kinds of things to bring up the kind of reading rates. And so I don't know if any of you had it where uh, they had like uh, 20 bands all in different colors. And let's say you started here in yellow. That was your current level of being, uh, being able to read. And then it would go all the way up to, say, purple or something. And then everybody entered on their own level. And by the time you got to purple, you had uh, conquered that thing. Does anybody remember that? Or was I just in kind of a bizarre? Okay. So you could, but here was something. that There was a top end. And once you, once you reach the top end, uh, that's it. You don't go any further than that. And that's not what happens in a relationship uh, with God. There is no top end. There is no uh, God saying, here's your certificate. This is as good as it gets. And uh, uh, just kind of uh, sit back and, uh, and enjoy this, but you can't take it any further than, than you've already taken it. We can look at people like, um, you know, uh, like mentors in my life. In my, it would be a Chuck Smith, uh, a William McDonald, or a Gail Irwin, and, or we can think about Billy Graham or whoever it might be and look and say, wow, I could never have the relationship with God that they have. Not true. Not true. I may never and will never have the same ministry as them or the same impact uh, for the kingdom of God and the world as, they, uh, as God gave them. But I can have every bit the relationship with God that, that they had, and even more. And so we determine that, uh, 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 and, and God allows uh, the relationship, uh, puts it in our court for what what it is that we might experience. This is why it is so important to continue to grow spiritually all the days of our Christian life. And, uh, and I don't know how many people, I, I got saved back, got going with the Lord back in 1980, and people on fire for the Lord, and all these different kinds of things, and, um, and a significant number of them are uh, coasting or whatever. It's always fun to run into somebody that's still at it with the same uh, zeal and growth as they ever had in their uh, relationship with the Lord. But it's a rarity. And the temptation is to just coast on this thing, say, well, that's all I want with God. Imagine how that goes over in heaven. That's all the relationship I want with you. And, uh, and, then, and then just stays in that place. But there'll always be room for growth, all the way to our, our final, our, our final uh, breath. And so the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And then he says to them, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil do deeds, but they did not hear me nor heed me, uh, says, uh, the, uh, says the Lord. So here he warns the children of Israel, don't follow the rebellious ways of your fathers. Don't follow their casual attitude toward my commandments and, and toward my word. It is very, very important for us as Christians to learn from the mistakes of others. We are to learn as we watch uh, Christians. Uh, we are to learn how to do things by watching them do well, running their race well. We learn that way. 
But if we only learn from uh, that kind of a positive aspect and we refuse to learn uh, from the mistakes that other people make so that we won't make that same mistake, we will cut off half of, of, of what, is trying to, uh, what is trying to teach us uh, in, in life. I would say way more than half of what I have uh, learned as a Christian is in watching people and then learning how to do something, but just as much watching and saying, oh, that ends up in a crash and burn spiritually. I think I want to skip that particular uh, characteristic in my life or character trait or that kind of a decision. Everything in life is teaching us something uh, if we're willing to learn and the importance of learning from the mistakes of our other uh, of others. So here we come back from Israel this last Sunday. We got on a flight and we arrived Wednesday. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was about... So uh, it was a long flight. We come back to the United States of America. The only thing I'm hearing about is the Oscars. And I'm hearing about the slap. And, and uh, it just, it, that's all anybody's talking about uh, on, on things. And so most of you, I assume, I just want to see, has anybody not seen it? Just raise your hand if you did not see it. God bless you. Uh, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Okay. And I say that on behalf of all of us. So, of course, Will Smith goes up there. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, slaps Chris Rock for saying a joke that nobody should say about another man's wife. I don't care who you are. I'm not saying, you know, nobody's right here, but, no, but there's not a moral equivalence to what Chris Rock did and what Will Smith did. And so you watch that, and immediately you're mortified by it. You cannot do that. <laughs> You cannot get up and, 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 uh, in, in any environment, and, and yet alone before the entire world, and go up and hit somebody because of something that, that they, they have said. And, and, so, and then everybody for the first 48 hours, 24 hours, everybody's looking, and uh, yeah, well, it's Chris Rock's fault, and, and Will Smith, he had a right to do this, and, and it all settles out, and... Uh, uh, hitting someone across the face in that environment after just 24 hours, it didn't settle well with anybody. There was just no justification for it. The thing blew up. Will Smith realized, I've messed up here as well. And he comes clean with a, a full confession on it. People say, well, he's trying to save his Oscar by, you know, resigning from the academy and all of that. I don't know that. I don't live inside of, uh, of his head. But, but here he, he does it. So what is it? That teach, that's a note to self. Do, do you have the capacity? Do not shout out. <laughs> do you have the capacity if someone in a public setting says something disparaging about your wife to not walk away, but go over and knock their head off. And if you have that capacity, that is a teachable moment. Do not do that. 
Because all the people that will pat you on the back for the first eight hours after it happens and try to tell you that you're right in doing that and all of the self-justification that you might come up related to with that, it'll all dissipate and it's not going to wear well. And so you learn from it. But all of life is, is teaching in, in that way and within the body of Christ as well. As we see people rise, as we see them fall, as we see them remain consistent and, and these things that are important for us to, uh, to learn from the, the uh, mistakes uh, of others. Now concerning Will Smith, and I'm going to talk about him really the rest, uh, rest of the sermon here. So, you know, what are we going to, you know, I feel the, the, the worst thing I feel about this is Chris Rock because until the Lord comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth, that clip is going to run. That's going to be right there with the, the woman Indian, uh, American, uh, American Indian accepting Brando's uh, um, award for him and the streaker when David Niven was giving the award. I mean, these things just don't disappear. Whenever they talk about the Oscars, they're going to be talking about this. So I feel bad that he gets brought into another man's uh, uh, loss of control, and now he, he can't ever uh, escape that. But whatever the Academy does, whatever the world does with Will Smith, in the body of Christ, there's the recognition we're all capable of doing very stupid things. And then recognizing that they're wrong. And then truly repenting and asking for forgiveness and being given a second chance now. And that's what this whole book is about, a second chance for the children of Israel to move forward and do it right the next time. To learn from your, your uh, forefathers related to this and even the mistakes from, uh, from, uh, from our uh, 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 our own lives. Now, one of the things that's interesting about verse 4 is that the Bible teaches from one end of the Bible to the other the importance of the respect of children toward their parents. Uh, it, it, is, it is a command in the, law, in the Ten Commandments. It fills the book of Proverbs. It, it, is, uh, it is taught repeatedly in the New Testament. A and so, if there was any communi community of people in the ancient world for whom uh, was, something was built into the lives of children, it was what was built into the lives of Jewish children concerning the respect of their parents. And God knows it. He taught them that. But here he says, I want you to respect your parents, but I want you to learn from them also. And if they have made mistakes, or they sin, or they have done uh, what here, uh, uh, talking about their evil ways and their evil deeds, then learn from that and make sure that that doesn't transfer into your life. Calling on a Jewish uh, younger person to look critically at the life of their parents was a big deal. A and yet God does that. Because again, we need to even learn from our parents who have made uh, mistakes in their lives and saying, ah, I'm from the same gene pool here. I will stay 
uh, away from <clears throat> that. I remember when I was growing up, uh, my mother was a McKinney, and, uh, and so I had a, uh, an Uncle Donnie, and uh, we spent a summer in New York with him and his wife. And, um, and so he, he told us, we were in high school at that time, and, and he told us, listen, the McKinney's cannot handle alcohol. They just can't do it. And, and there were people in the family that had proven that. And so there was a lesson for me. I'd be like, all right, I, all right, I don't need to l learn that. In, I don't need to make a fool of myself and follow in that. Obviously, someone has taught that to the whole McKinney clan to stay, stay clear of it. And so to look at things and say, uh, and, and especially when we become Christians, uh, we can become Christians and, and, the, and the two parents are drug dealers. Or that the, the one is cutting every kind of corner imaginable in order to make a fortune in business and compromising their Christian witness uh, every week of the year. And everybody knows it, the hypocrisy that can be in a household. And for a child to look and say, that breaks, that, that cycle, that continuation of that breaks with my life. Uh, no matter what was done in my family, that's not going to continue now through me. And we have the ability to do that. How many people in this room, how many people uh, in the world even today, they're the first Christian in their family. It is the first group of children in their family that are now being raised in the things of the Lord and a break from all of the things that hold the family uh, in bondage in terms of sin. And, and it's wonderful uh, to, to do that. I am not going, I love my parents, I love and all, I respect in, in, in the way that God calls me to respect, but I will not allow their evil or disobedience or the rebellion against God to continue in my life. I will not use it as a justification for, for uh, my life. And so God makes that a very, very practical uh, exhortation and, and a needed one, and, a, and a, it fills us with hope related to that. He said, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, uh, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, uh, to speak to your uh, wicked parents, uh, did those prophecies not overtake your fathers? And so God says, now look, you saw what your fathers were. You saw what I sent the prophets uh, to say to them. You saw what my word says. Who won in the long run? Did your fathers win uh, or did my word, my word win? Which one had the final say? And everyone could say after the Babylonian captivity, God, you won. Everything you said through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, uh, through Ezekiel, all, through Daniel, all of these things uh, have, have come, uh, come uh, to pass. And that's, that's another thing that is wonderful when we're kind of breaking off or we're learning related to our own life to say, I'm not going to make my relationship with God an extension of somebody else or, or, or somebody be an example of what that relationship should be when they shouldn't be that example. And one of the great things related to that is to just look at people's lives outside of the family and look in their lives and see the decisions that can be made contrary to God's Word 
and, uh, in a person's life and to see after a number of years whether God's Word uh, fared well or whether a rebellion against God's Word fared uh, well. Which one wins? Uh, which one comes out on top and which one leads to destruction? Well, the Word of God. It always has the final say. That's one of the great things about growing older is that you've got this long period to watch your own life and learn, to watch the lives of other people, to watch the commandments of God be violated by the world, be obeyed by the, the, uh, the world, and then uh, by people, and then, and then you get a chance to see where it, it all uh, lands. And, and you, you learn concerning the Word of God, this is going to have the final say in everybody's uh, life. Uh, one of the Proverbs is a, uh, speaks about the, the, the fact that, you know, where there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is, is the way of death. It doesn't matter what somebody looks like when they begin the path of disobedience to God's Word. It's what do they look like at the end of that path. And when you live long enough, you get to see enough of that that it becomes the teacher and you realize, no, I want my life to not bear the wounds and the marks and the beatings and, and the, and the uh, damage that is done uh, uh, by walking disobedient to the Lord, I want to walk obedient to it because it's going to have the final say, whether for blessing or whether for, uh, for chastening. I, I remember, and I'm just going to tell stories about myself tonight. Is that, that okay, really? Uh, Karen and I, this is, today's our 46th wedding anniversary. So just a nod to her. Let's see. And, and I was born in Henderson, Nevada. It was 1955. And... and um, but when I was in the eighth grade, I was in, in junior high. Junior high in the town I lived in was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And there were people, there were two, two groups of people, main cliques of people um, in the junior high. There were the hards, the tough people, and then there were the cliques. That was, the, that was kind of the two, two groups. And I remember there was a guy, there were several people in some of my classes in the eighth grade, and they're pretty rough people. They were the hards, you know. And, um, and even at that young age, in the home that they were growing up in, and you would, uh, uh, they could stay out all night if they wanted to. They could do anything that they wanted to, completely unsupervised. And, and at that time, for most of us that were in that class, our parents were comparatively very strict. Uh, my stepfather was very, very strict. And uh, so you could look longingly at the freedom that they had and the trouble that they could get into and all of that and, and kind of the ignorance of that age, certainly the, my ignorance at, at that age, and, and wish, wow, I wish I had that kind of freedom too. But then you get into high school, and how many of them already alcoholics, already drug addicts, Already, uh, their life is, all, uh, the course is already cast except for Christ. They're used up before they even graduate from high school. And again, you see it. You see it, and it's teaching us uh, uh, about uh, the, the truth of the, the Word of God. And, uh, and that's, obeying it is, is the safe place, and, and, uh, because I'm never going to prove it, uh, prove it wrong. 
at all. And so they returned, he said, there in the middle of verse 6, just as the Lord of hosts determined uh, to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, uh, he has uh, dealt uh, with us. And so uh, the Lord uh, tells, in essence, what Jesus said, um, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word is not going to pass uh, away. All of it came to pass. Now, in verse 7, he begins a, a series of eight visions that God uh, gave to Zechariah, and uh, uh, through uh, uh, chapter 6, the first half of, of the book, and they are intended to be encouragements to the children of Israel in the rebuilding of the temple. So, Haggai comes on the scene. He has the gift of exhortation. Come on! You got your panel houses, and what are you doing with all of these excuses? And, and all go build that temple, what God has called you uh, to do. And, uh, but you also need, need encouragers to come alongside you and, and tell you, uh, in, in doing this, God is really going to, to bless you. And we need encouragers in our life, and, and we need exhorters in our life. I like exhorters in my life. I, I love an exhortive sermon. I love exhortive uh, preaching uh, in my life because I'm a knucklehead. And, and so, but I do like the encouragement as well. And so God sends this perfect combination of people uh, uh, to them. And, uh, and so these visions reach all the way down through Israel's history from the, the rebuilding of the temple at the, at the time in which uh, these visions are given all the way through to Jesus' second coming and, and the kingdom age. And so it covers a very, very uh, broad uh, uh, section of the, the future history of, of God's people. And so the first vision is the vision of the horses. And on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Now, this is the second time that Zechariah dates his prophecies not from an Israel king, a king of Israel or Judah. Why? There are no more kings after the Babylonian Empire. So he dates his prophecies according to whoever is the secular king of the world-ruling empire at that time, and, and that happened to be uh, Darius. And here is the vision, and, and all of these visions follow the same kind of pattern. Uh, there is a, a introductory words to it. There's a description of the, ver, uh, the vision. Uh, Zechariah then asks, what does that mean? What am I seeing? And then the interpretation is given to him by uh, an, an angel, and, and that's the, uh, the progression. And so he sees now the vision I saw by night. And behold, a man's riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and uh, white. And so uh, the myrtle trees is a tree common in, in Israel that likes water. Uh, remember that Zechariah is prophesying to Jerusalem, so this could very well be happening in uh, the southern end of, of uh, the Kidron Valley. Uh, they're right outside of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And so this is what he sees, these, uh, these horses in the hollow that they're in, the trees, and, and the, the different colors of, 
of, of the horses. And, and I said, my Lord, what are these? He doesn't understand it, and he's, he's curious about it. And so the angel that accompanies him uh, talked with him and said to him, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And so the, they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all of the earth is uh, resting uh, quietly. So this uh, vision comes after the rebuilding of the temple is going on for several months and the people are in need of, of some, some encouragement. And this vision is intended to be an encouragement uh, to them. These, uh, these riders of these, uh, these horses here, uh, the four horsemen, almost certainly uh, angels. Uh, the rider of the red horse is, is the leader uh, uh, among them. And they have returned from some kind of a, a, a recon reconnaissance uh, mission. They've gone out into the world, gone out into the area uh, of the Middle East. They have uh, reconnoitered, uh, I guess that would be the word, uh, all of that region, come back now with a report concerning the condition of, uh, of, uh, of the world uh, around them. And, uh, and they come back with a the report. They wait to be called upon to give their report. And uh, they, they report uh, that, uh, that all of the earth is resting uh, quietly. They come back and they report this in verse 11 to the angel of the Lord, probably a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ as he's referred to here. Later in the book, I think it's in chapter 3, it's made clear that this is a reference to Jesus, that this is language is being used concerning him. So they return back to Jesus and they give this report about the land. It is, uh, uh, the whole world here uh, is at peace. And the idea is, as this uh, vision would be delivered to the people, the idea would be that there is nothing hindering you from rebuilding uh, this temple at all. So go ahead and rebuild the temple. You remember they stopped rebuilding the temple the first time because they were opposed by the Samaritans. And, and now uh, the report comes in, there is no hindrance to you uh, doing what, what, uh, what God has called you to do. Uh, everything is at peace and, and you'll be able to do it without any, any kind of, of a hindrance. And so they, they would look at um, the, uh, the military might of the countries around them. Uh, they would look at their relatively small numbers within the land and think if we continue to rebuild this temple, we're going to create an uprising and it's going to be a mess. And, and, and so the same way that we can be so acutely aware on the physical realm of all of the things that could, uh, if I obey God, all of these things could potentially uh, happen. And God comes in and, and, and encourages them uh, in the fact that, uh, uh, that what, uh, from the vantage point of a spiritual perspective, a perspective they couldn't see, that there is no hindrance to you obeying what God has called you to do. And so it would have been a, a great encouragement to them. The coast is clear for 
for rebuilding uh, the temple. Then there's an additional uh, revelation that is given in verse 12. And then the angel of the Lord answered uh, and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were uh, angry uh, these 70 years? And so uh, when the question is, when are you going to revisit Jerusalem and, and Judah uh, and the cities of Judah uh, with the mercy that we once knew uh, uh, from you? And, uh, and again, the, the, the city is in, in largely in ruins at this time from the Babylonian uh, destruction uh, of, of, uh, of the city. And so uh, the question's not asked. Jesus doesn't ask the question here because he needs to be informed related uh, to, to the answer in, in any way, but that uh, the question could be posed, the answer could come, and then be revealed to the children of Israel that both God the Father uh, and their Messiah were sympathetic to their plight, sympathetic to uh, the difficulty that they were facing and, and that the Lord would act to, to uh, rectify it. And so there is this uh, plea, this, this asking for uh, when are we, are we ever going to be what we once were. And anybody that returns from a 70-year backslide, I mean, given our lifespans, that's like setting a record. Uh, but so we're talking about a significant backslide. Can I ever, can I ever be what I once was? Can I ever have with you what I once had? I mean, that's, that's the plea. That's the cry. And then the Lord uh, answered uh, the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. And so the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am not through with you by any stretch of the imagination. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations at, e at ease, for I was a little angry, uh, and they helped, but with evil uh, intent. And so uh, God expressed His love, His zeal for Israel, the future plans that He has for them, and then He expresses His anger over the Gentile nations that He used to judge Israel and Judah because they overstepped their boundaries. And, and went way too far. God intended to chasten uh, Israel, but not uh, to uh, be treated the way that these Gentile nations uh, uh, treated them. And so the Lord spoke about the fact that uh, His anger would fall upon uh, these, uh, these Gentile nations. He was a little angry, comparatively speaking, with His, his people, and He really was. But He's emphatically angry with, with what these people uh, did uh, did uh, to them, and so God wasn't through with them, and and now uh, they need to uh, move forward. I, I think in in terms of the Christian life, um, you we all know that the devil doesn't play fair, and he is an adversary, and uh, and we know he's got to go through God in order to do whatever he does to us in terms of temptation or all the different kinds of, uh, of things that, that he does. And, and so, so he, is, he is given uh, that room to serve God's purposes and all, and, uh, but, 
one thing about the devil is he always overplays his hand. He always does. That's why when you look at kind of the goofy, ungodly, you'd call them uh, liberal policies in the United States of America today, you sit tight, you hold tight, because they will always overplay their hands. They will always create a backlash uh, until it gets so wicked that it doesn't. And so that's why we're always kind of on pins and needles related to this, this stuff. But they always, the devil always overplays his hands. And so the Lord, they overplayed their hands with Israel, and God is, is saying to the children of Israel, now make them pay for that. Uh, by doing what I have called you to do. I think it was, listen, I listened to all of the Bible studies when I was gone. Wow, I was tempted to take another month off and, and listen. It was just fabulous. And, uh, and all of them. And, uh, but Bill Holdridge talked about um, his father was an alcoholic for so many years. I think it was, if it was, a mor- it was a morning service, yeah, on forgiveness. And wasn't that great? And, and, um, but he talked about, you know, the relationship and the strain of the relationship. But when his father came to know the Lord, he gave his life then now to helping people that were caught in the same bondage that he was caught in. He's going to make the devil pay for what the devil did to his own life. And that's kind of what the Lord is saying here. I'm not through with you. Now do what I'm telling you to do. Make him pay. Make these nations pay for what it is they did. And the best way that we can uh, make the devil pay for what he does against us is to be faithful to what God has called us uh, to do. And then he gives the the promise of these blessings that are coming now uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Is God going to pour mercy out on them? The question is asked. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. I'm going to deal with you now on the basis of mercy and not judgment in their repentance. If anybody sits here tonight and you're coming back from a long backslide, and sometimes the, a backslide doesn't have to be that, I mean, you're on spring break somewhere, or uh, you've uh, become the head of a drug cartel in, uh, in Africa somewhere. It doesn't have to take that. The Bible talks about the backslider in heart shall be filled with all of his ways. I can backslide and you would never know it uh, I- I- until it, it becomes too much to hide it. Uh, from, from other people. But here's the encouragement. is There's a period of chastening and a period uh, of judgment that has to go on to get us back onto the straight and narrow. But once we do, now God wants to resume His work of mercy in our lives. I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. That is the temple rebuilt, uh, says the Lord of hosts. And, and, and that that is what, in the Jewish mind, made Jerusalem Jerusalem, was the fact that this temple existed there. So this is the highest purpose for Jerusalem. It's not like, okay, you can come back to Jerusalem, but I'm never trusting my temple to you again. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. That's a one strike you're out. I mean, what you did and what I had to do to get you back in, and you think I'm going to give you any kind of spiritual responsibility for the rest of your life, that is not happening. That's not what God did. He said, my house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And the surveyor's line going out to kind of plot the land for development uh, in, in Jerusalem, it shall be stretched out 
uh, over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Uh, we just got back from Israel. Did I, did I already? I've got three more Israel references uh, before we finish chapter one. This is about me tonight. You know that. So we go to Israel, and the first uh, couple nights that we're there, we're staying in a, a town named uh, uh, Netanya. Would you just raise your hand, if, it, it, not if you went on the trip, uh, but if you've never been to Israel and you recognize the name Netanya. Just, I'm just going to do a quick, a quick thing. Okay, two, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay, I see anyone else here. Okay, all right. Okay, so it's a city nobody cares about. It's a nothing city in Israel, but it's, but it's not. We went, we went there, and from the front door of the hotel, there are eight cranes in the air. Someone has said the crane is the national bird of Israel. Eight cranes in the air building skyscrapers. They have to build up. It wasn't that long ago that Israel was four and a half million people. Today, it is 10 million. They've got to put these people somewhere. People are returning to Israel. In uh, Netanya, the people that are buying up the apartments that are being built right and left in every lot that you can imagine uh, in, are, are uh, immigrants and in large part Jews from France. Uh, they see the handwriting on the wall in terms of Islam. In the country of France, they see that there's no pushback on it and that it doesn't bode well for them. And so some are moving to Israel uh, into an apartment in Netanya uh, uh, because they see the handwriting on the wall. Others are staying in France longer, but this is the backup plan to own an apartment there. Somebody else in Netanya took a walk and got up on a higher vantage point than I did and saw 18 cranes in Netanya. And to go through Israel is to see uh, cranes everywhere, Jerusalem everywhere, building, building, building. Is, is the, uh, their economy is a very, very good economy and, and an industrious uh, people. And so here is this, the same kind of thing. He says, the surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. It's going to be uh, rebuilt And again, uh, the next promise that he gives again proclaims, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall spread out again, uh, spread out through prosperity. Not only will Jerusalem be rebuilt and prosper, but all of the cities of, of, of Israel. And he goes on to encourage them, the Lord shall again comfort uh, Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. In other words, I'm not through with you. Now, anybody that's backslidden for any length of time, whether it's for five minutes or whether it's for two hours or whether it's for a weekend or whether it's for ten years, uh, can recognize, at least on some level, what it means when I try to return to the Lord from a backslide and to be responded with in this way with my repentance. I'm not through with you. And so let's get on with my plan for your life. And what this would have meant to the children of Israel upon uh, hearing this. We read it as a historical book. Okay, they did this, they did that. God put them in the doghouse, and then this came about, and it's all of this. But it has great application for our own lives as well. This would have been uh, an incredible encouragement 
uh, to them. And then he said in verse 18, then when I raised up my eyes and looked, there were four horns. What in the world do these four horns represent? And here you have the second vision. And we'll have to wait till next week to find out what that is all about because we don't have enough time uh, to head into it and, and deal with it properly. So we will stop there at verse 18 and pick it up uh, next week. So if the worship team would come forward, we'll uh, get them to close us in a, um, a, a meditative kind of set of a couple songs here. And, uh, but just a, a chance to praise the Lord and worship the Lord for how gracious He has been to us. Do you know how many times He could have thrown me or anyone out with the trash in, in our relationship with Him, our faithlessness in it, in our service uh, to Him? And, and, and so much grace, and so much grace, and so much grace. So we're not talking about a theoretical situation, you know, thousands of years ago that we cannot relate to. It's a celebration of God's grace that when we repent, He is eager to restore us. And that may not mean a lot to some of us as we would uh, sit here tonight and we're in a good place with the Lord. Uh, and so we would look at it kind of reflectively in terms of appreciation. But it means the world. I don't know anybody's heart in this room tonight. I don't even know my own heart. But it means the world for the person to realize that God does give a second chance. And as he reveals him, his heart here, even in these first 17 verses of, of chapter 1. Let's give him praise for it uh, now. Father, you are so wonderful. We... Um, your grace, and we stand here before you to the praise of the glory uh, of your grace in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that even with the children of Israel, you didn't cast them off, no matter how grievous their sin was with their repentance. It speaks to the greatness of, of your heart, of your mercy, and of your grace. And our lives are as great a testimony as as anyone in, in history. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in our lives, that you find a way to extend grace and mercy to us without us minimizing the seriousness uh, of sin and the importance of obedience, and, and that when you forgive us by your Spirit, there is no temptation associated